Well, some of you, some of you may noticed, may have noticed, excuse me, that uh, we have the poinsettias throughout the church. We have a few wreaths hung up here and there, and I am wearing my Christmas sweater. So it is that time of year again. It is the Christmas season, and today we are beginning our Christmas series, um, which is titled, I Have Come, the Incarnation in the Plan of God. And so through this series, we are looking at passages of Scripture in which Christ has said why he has come. For what are the reasons that he has come? What are the reasons that the incarnation was necessary? And so that's what we're going to be looking at today in the next few weeks in our new Christmas series, I Have Come. Um, And so today, we are going to begin that series through this passage in John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. I'm going to read that for us now. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let me lead us in prayer one more time. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, and we pray that you bless the preaching of your word today, that we might know what it means to be followers of Christ, and know um, and remember what Christ has done for us. Amen. Well, one of my uh, best friends growing up, he was uh, uh, culturally Jewish, um, but he he was a Christian. And so he and his family called themselves Messianic Jews. Um, His mother was actually from Israel and was a first-generation believer, believing that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, and uh, so I got to learn a lot of things from them about Jewish culture um, to Shabbat meals on Friday nights, which were just fantastic meals. They just are, she was just the best cook. And something else that was interesting was uh, even their, their wedding reflected uh, this Jewish culture. And their wedding contract that I had to sign as the best man as a witness was something called a, a ketuvah. And the ketuvah was a, this kind of ornate piece of paper um, that explained in detail that the family, uh, the husband's family, if anything should happen to the husband, would have to ensure that the bride was taken care of. And so it had kind of stipulation for uh, widows in the contract. And it's an old ancient tradition. It's not something that we necessarily need as much anymore with with life insurance and stuff like that. But it was a way to uh, assure the bride and her family that she would be taken care of. 
And so to give assurance to the bride and her family, they would have this uh, kind of contract written in to the ketuvah. Today we're going to be talking about the kind of assurance we have as Christians, as believers in Christ. Um, And that's what we're going to be looking at at our passage where Jesus gives his disciples the assurance of their salvation because he submits to the will, to the plan of God the Father. All right, so that's what we're looking at today. Uh, John chapter 6 is the context for our passage. And John chapter 6 starts off with the feeding of the 5,000. And really the whole theme of this chapter is bread. Um, But with the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples asked Jesus, where do we buy bread for all of these people? And you'll remember there was a, a boy there with five loaves of bread and a couple fish. And Jesus uses that boy's meal to feed thousands and thousands of people, probably much more than 5,000, because 5,000 just counted the men. And after this, after that miracle, the people were ready to make Jesus king. They were ready to force him to be king, is I think what the passage says. Because who wouldn't want a king that could miraculously feed all of his people? If we had a king who could feed us bread like this, we wouldn't have to... We wouldn't go hungry, we wouldn't have to use all our money on bread. But it wasn't Jesus' time, so he escapes. And then later on, on the other side of the sea, the crowd finds Jesus again. And that's where a dialogue between Jesus and the Jewish crowds began. And that's what's uh, unique about the Gospel of John, is that we see so much dialogue and so much discussion from Jesus to the crowds or to individual people. And so it's a unique and precious gospel for that reason. Now, Jesus tells the crowd that they just, they just want him because he fed them, but that they shouldn't seek bread that perishes, but they should seek the bread that gives eternal life. He's talking about spiritual things. They are stuck on earthly needs, understandably so. But that's what Jesus does in the Gospel of John. He uses kind of the earthly material situations to talk about spiritual things. So they ask a very natural question. What must we do to get this bread, right? Bread that never perishes sounds great to them. Jesus tells them to believe in the one whom God sent. Of course, Jesus himself. That's what you must do, believe in Jesus. So the crowd says, okay. What sign will you do so that we'll believe in you? Which is a weird thing to ask, in my opinion, because he just fed thousands and thousands of people bread and fish from just five loaves and two fish. It's hard to believe that they had forgotten what Jesus had done. So my guess is that they just want more food. (laughs) Um, But they say, They refer back to Moses. They say, Moses gave us bread from heaven. They're referring back to when God supernaturally provided for the Israelites so that they could survive in the wilderness. So God gave the people of old a sign. Now what sign are you going to give to us? That's when Jesus says this in verses 32 to 34. He said, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, 
But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus reminds them that it was not Moses who gave them the bread. It was God. God was the one who sent the bread from heaven. And Jesus, all throughout the Gospel of John, is constantly telling the people that he came from heaven. He was sent down to earth from heaven. Okay, and so that's where we begin our passage this morning. Okay, and what, why has Jesus come? Well, he came to be the bread of life. Let's look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, this is the first of many I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. The phrase in the Greek is ego eimi. And it's the same unique phrase that is used in the Septuagint, that is the Greek Old Testament, in Exodus when when Moses is speaking to God in the burning bush and God identifies himself to Moses as I am who I am. Ego eimi. And that same phrase is being used here and then onward. And so there is a, a, a veiled reference I think, back to the name of God when Jesus uses this language. Now, the Jewish audience doesn't catch on to it here, but he, in just a couple chapters, at the end of chapter 8, they're going to understand what Jesus is calling himself when he says this Greek phrase. So with that I am statement, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Now, what we have to remember about the ancient, ancient Middle East is that uh, meals were different. For us, the center or the focal point of the meal is meat. It reminds me of our Thanksgiving this year. Um, we decided, I decided I want us to make the whole meal. I want to give that a try. We never really made the whole meal before. We usually purchase the meal. But this year, Ruth and I decided to make the entire meal ourselves. Ruth made all the sides. And I was in charge of the main dish, the turkey. All right. And I, you know, I, I don't think I realized how long you have to thaw a turkey. <laughs> it takes days. I did it in time. I did it in time, but just in time. Was, you know, a few days before, I was like, oh, we have to thaw this thing, don't we? And I actually tried a brine. Some people don't like brines. I, I gave it a try. I wanted my turkey to be moist. And, you know, I rubbed it down with butter, I filled it up, and I roasted it for about three hours. But it was my first turkey, I ended up cooking it too long, and it ended up being a little dry. But still, it was the centerpiece of our meal. That's how it is for us, the meat is the centerpiece. We had bread, but bread was a side item. But back then, meat was not the centerpiece usually. Uh, Unless perhaps you were very wealthy, maybe it was. Bread was the centerpiece. Bread was what kept you full. Bread is what fed your family. Bread was what kept you on your feet so you could work. So in ancient times, bread was often a metaphor for life itself. It was essential to live. It was never just a side item. So when Jesus is saying he is the bread of life, 
uh, his audience would understand what he means by that. He's saying, I am what is essential for life. Not only that, I, I am what will satisfy your life. And that's why Jesus says, whoever comes to me will not hunger. Take part in Jesus, believe in him, and you will be fully satisfied for all eternity. You will not hunger and you will not thirst. You will not thirst is an interesting one to add in here when talking about bread. But earlier, Jesus had talked about living water to a Samaritan woman. He could give her the living water that would keep her satisfied for all eternity as well. So Jesus is the one who gives living water, but also is the bread of life. And the way you partake in this bread of life is by believing in him. He is essential for eternal life. Jesus continues in verse 36. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All right, so the people here have not just seen him, but they've heard his message and they've actually seen him perform extraordinary miracles. He fed thousands of them just a few verses ago, not long ago for them. And yet when they saw him, they saw political gain or possibly economic gain. They didn't believe in him, even though they saw him provide as the one who came from heaven, as the one who was sent from God. Now, it's hard to imagine that could, there could be people in Jesus' day who would see what he did and listen to what he said and still not believe him, but that, that was the case. So Jesus tells them, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Of course, if you're a Jewish person in the time of the Bible, you wanted to be seen and known as someone who knows God, who obeys God, who's in the right standing with God. But in the Gospel of John, Jesus is constantly having to tell people, if you don't believe me, then you don't know the Father, because I was sent by the Father. Chapter 5 is all about how close Jesus and the Father truly are. Jesus only does what the Father tells him to do, and Jesus accomplishes everything that the Father has for him to accomplish. All of his deeds are the Father's deeds because he does what the Father tells him to do. And here, I think, is another statement like those ones. Everything the Father gives me, I keep. So if you were of the Father, or if you knew the Father, you would come to me. But instead, you don't come to me, so you don't know the Father. He's talking to people who don't believe him. Now, these are all things that would be pretty offensive to his audience. He says this not only to the Jews around Galilee, but to other people, oh, excuse me, but to the, uh, to the leaders in Jerusalem as well, to the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And as a result, they are not fond of him. They're constantly trying to kill or capture him, but they can't because it's not his time yet. So while these types of things would have caused offense to many, these words would have been very reassuring to those who heard Jesus and believed him. If you know Jesus, then you know the Father, and Jesus will never cast you out. And that's an idea he's going to expand upon in just a few verses. So Jesus is the bread of life that is essential for eternal life. He is what can satisfy us in this life. That's why he came. He came to be the bread of life for us and give us eternal life. And he also came to do the will of the Father, okay, as we'll see in this next section, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
to like the manna that God sent down from heaven to feed the Israelites in the wilderness so that they could live, God sent Jesus, the bread of life, down from heaven. Why? To do the will of the Father. Jesus has come to do the will of the one who sent him. In the Gospel of John, this is how Jesus is described very often. He, he only does what the Father tells him to do, like I said before. He only um, heals whom the Father tells him to heal, which is apparently everyone. He only says what the Father tells him to say. He only performs the miracles that the Father tells him to perform, and he's only going to stay as long as the Father permits him to stay. When the Father decides it's time for Jesus to be done, then he'll be done. In the way that John describes the connection between Jesus and the Father. It's so deep, it's so close, it's so intertwined. It's almost as if Jesus and the Father are one and the same. It's why in Colossians, Paul writes about the supremacy of Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God. If you ever want to know what God the Father would do or would say in a certain situation, all you need to do is look at Jesus. He was sent to do the will of God the Father. Jesus didn't come on his own by himself with his own plan for coming, but he was sent by the Father, has a relationship with the Father, and carries out the plan of the Father. So we've established that Jesus will accomplish the plan of the Father. But what is that plan? Verses 39 to 40. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And here in these two verses, we have an extraordinary statement about the assurance of salvation we have as believers in Christ. Christ has come so those who believe in him will have eternal life. We've discussed this in Ephesians, in the Gospel of John, but what it takes to have salvation from your sins is belief in the Gospel of Jesus. We are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But not only that, Jesus reassures believers here that the will of the Father, which he has come to accomplish, is that everyone who believes in him will be raised up on the last day. None whom the Father gives to him will be lost. None that believe in him will be lost. We have a great assurance of salvation that Jesus will keep those who trust in him until the final day when all will be raised up with him. This is, what the, will, this is the will of the Father, and we know that Jesus accomplishes the will of the Father. That's the great hope we have in Christ Jesus. He is reliable and he accomplishes what the Father has set, sent him out to do. Jesus isn't like me when Ruth sends me out to get groceries and I forget half the stuff she sent me for. Or if I'm going from the car to the house, but I must do it in one trip and I'm carrying too much stuff and a bag breaks and I break all of our eggs. Jesus isn't like that. He doesn't make mistakes. He keeps his promises. He accomplishes the Father's plans. And so we have a great assurance of salvation that he will keep us until the day we are raised up to be with him. And so in this 
passage, we've looked at a couple reasons why Jesus came from heaven to earth. Okay, and so as we're thinking about this passage, I want us to remember why Jesus came. He, he came to be the bread of life for the world. Just like in ancient biblical times, bread was essential for life. Jesus is essential for eternal life. He's the only one who can give us eternal life, and he's the only one who can truly satisfy us. He came to be the bread of life for each of us. And then he came to submit to the Father's will so that those who believe in him would have eternal life. We have a great assurance of eternal life because our Savior demonstrated his obedience to the Father's will until the very end. And it's difficult to think of this idea of Jesus submitting to the will of the Father without thinking of his final night in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what it says in Mark chapter 14, verses 32-36. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, Jesus and his disciples. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with them Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass for him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. This was the darkest night in Jesus' time here on earth. He was about to face something he had never faced before, the wrath of God upon all sin. That, that was the cup he's talking about here. The cup is the judgment of sin. And yet he seemed to have some sort of understanding about what he was going to go through. As we see it through the extraordinary anguish and the fear of facing something as never, he has never faced before. Yet even so, even with all of this anguish, he still has the capacity to say, not my will, but yours be done. In Jesus' darkest hours, faced with betrayal from his disciples, death upon the cross, and the judgment of God for all sin, Jesus still obeyed the will of God. And if he was not willing to abandon us in his darkest hour then, we can rest assured that he will keep us, even now, until the end, and raise us up with him for eternal life when that final day does come. Because Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. That is the assurance, the great assurance of salvation that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for, once again, for your word. We thank you that we have a great assurance, not because of a contract, um, but because of the character and the merit of the person in whom we trust and have faith. Lord, we can know that you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit, that you are keeping us for that great day, that our sins are forgiven, that you are sanctifying us and making us like Christ because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And because even though what he was facing 
was extraordinarily great, and the anguish that he, we see in the Garden of Gethsemane was great, he was willing to submit to your will. And there he sets the example for us, Lord, that we might, each one of us, in hard times, when things, when the opposition seems too great, that we might be willing to say also, Lord, that not my will, but your will be done. That we might be willing, Lord, in our lives as well, to submit to your will for us. Lord, that's not easy, but we pray that your spirit would guide us in how we can do that uh, all throughout this week, in the big things and the little things as well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.